a very long time ago, people began telling a story about a man named Noah who built an ark and survived a flood. This Noah had three sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. Ham had a son named Cush, and Cush had a son, Nimrod, a mighty hunter. As the years and centuries and millennia went on, people still talked about Noah. Many forgot about Nimrod, but not everyone. Some of those who still told Nimrod's story said he had been more than a hunter. They said he had been a mighty builder too, one with an idea to build a tower that reached into the heavens. They said God feared Nimrod and his tower. Humans will be too powerful, God thought. So God confused their language, made communication impossible. God scattered Nimrod and his people, separating them, segregating them. Those who told Nimrod's story said the builder was actually the devil's mouthpiece, an enemy of God. They said Nimrod was an integrationist, and that is why God went after Nimrod and his tower. From Good Faith Media, this is the six-part narrative podcast, A Second Language, Episode 3, Nimrod. The July 10, 1952 edition of the Arkansas Baptist State Paper carried a large front-page photo, a portrait of a young white man in suit and tie, hair neatly combed back. Under the photo was the header, Letter from Dale Cowling. The letter was Cowling's acceptance of the call to be the next pastor of Second Baptist Church in downtown Little Rock. Cowling ended his public letter with, I pledge you my very best as God's representative among you. He was 28. This was the era of astonishing growth among Southern Baptist churches, the heyday of church resourcing and building. Second Baptist was no exception, and the church was nothing if not programmatic. Reading through the church's newsletters and minutes, there is constant hammering about numbers, outreach, giving, praying. It's all very traditional. The young Cowling preached about things like the need for revival, the dangers of gambling, the importance of missions work. It's hard to overemphasize the church's power and role in the life not just of the city, but the life of the individual, the family. Church documents offer ample evidence that Second Baptist, like many of its sister churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, was a well-oiled machine, not free of conflict or challenge, but firing on all thrusters. The year Cowling became pastor, the church baptized about 60 people. That number doubled by 1957. Before he arrived, church membership was about 2,000 people. By 1957, it was nearly 2,700. And believe me, they talked about these numbers all the time. They were training the kids, and they were training the teachers to train the kids. They were starting new churches, stocking and staffing a church library, screening Billy Graham evangelistic films in the church auditorium, starting a nursery day school, and on and on. Through radio and television, Cowling said in one sermon, we can bring a constant stream of visitors to our services. From these visitors, we will gain our best prospects and derive our greatest growth. This kind of program does not cost, it pays for itself! Exclamation point. 
By this time, Brooks Hayes had become a member of the United States Congress. The Sunday school class he had taught at Second Baptist had already been named after him for 20 years, the Brooks Hayes class. And everywhere he went in Washington and beyond, he carried his Baptist tradition and trademark wit. Uh, I am a Baptist, uh, not as narrow, however, as Brother Wilson, who opposed the consolidation of our little church down in Arkansas with the Christian church. He said, I'm a Baptist, and nobody's going to make a Christian out of me. (laughs) (laughs) Or there was that time Hayes wrote a book and joked about its reception among Presbyterians. But this Presbyterian preacher said, it's a good book. I wonder who wrote it for him. And all I could could think of to say was, well, I'm glad he thinks well of it. I wonder who read it to him. (laughs) And in the midst of all this, the landmark 1954 Supreme Court case, Brown v. Board of Education, which said racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. In 1955, the murder of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old African-American in Mississippi. Later that year, the start of the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, which leads us to 1956 and a speech on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. The speech was delivered by Congressman Howard Smith of Virginia. Its enunciation of values became commonly known as the Southern Manifesto. It essentially accused the Supreme Court of legislating from the bench, if that sounds familiar, and trampling on states' rights. It included language and characterizations that would be laughable if they weren't so shameful. Example, referring to Brown v. Board of Education, the manifesto said, It is destroying the amicable relations between the white and Negro races that have been created through 90 years of patient effort by the good people of both races. It has planted hatred and suspicion where there has been heretofore friendship and understanding. The manifesto's signers said, We commend the motives of those states which have declared the intention to resist forced integration by any lawful means. Nineteen senators and 82 representatives put their names to the Southern Manifesto. All came from states that had been part of the Confederacy. Among the signers, Brooks Hayes, historian John Kirk. Hayes was a, you know, very respected member of Congress and was seen as a moderate force within the state, been seen as a racial moderate. But Hayes is another example of, you know, how that moderation became quickly erased in the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education, how it became polarized and how you had to take sides because Brooks Hayes, along with the rest of the Arkansas delegation, signed the Southern Manifesto in 1956, which opposed Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, so, you know, even figures like Brooks Hayes, who, you know, had a lot of respect in the community, uh, their, their room for, you know, maneuver and their room to be moderate uh, just vanished after Brown v. Board of Education. It was, you know, it was just not viable if you wanted to win political office to, to express any kind of support for school desegregation or integration. As it's hard to overemphasize the reach of a church like Second Baptist in the 1950s, it's also hard to overemphasize the earth-shattering impact of calls to integrate schools in the South. Pushback was embedded in white Southern Baptist churches. To begin to understand the symbiosis of segregationist attitude and church, look no further than a sermon by Carrie Daniel 
preached on May 23, 1954, as a reaction to the Brown ruling. Daniel, pastor of the First Baptist Church of West Dallas in Texas, titled his sermon, God the Original Segregationist. Daniel began his sermon by reading from Genesis chapter 11, a story of the so-called Tower of Babel, where God confused people's language, stopped their collective building project, and scattered them across the face of the earth. Daniel really went after one of Noah's descendants, Nimrod, identifying him as the leader of the Tower Project and calling him, Nimrod, the original integrationist for, apparently, trying to keep people together and build a tower to heaven. When God scattered people and confused their speech, that was God's way, according to Daniel, of removing the temptation to reunite as people. So, let some people speak Arabic, others Russian. Let some live in Africa, others in Europe. You have to give Daniel credit for staying on point, because he titled subsequent sections of his sermon, Abraham the Segregationist, Moses the Segregationist, Nehemiah the Segregationist, Habakkuk the Segregationist, and of course he didn't stop there. Jesus the Segregationist, Paul the Segregationist, you get the idea. But it's important to understand Kerry Daniel and his point of view, because it represented an ocean of belief among white Southern Baptists. He was not an outlier. His parents had been Southern Baptist missionaries to China. He had gone to Baylor University and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He'd led revival services in Arkansas, where the Baptist State Paper noted that his preaching in Fort Smith had resulted in 11 additions, 6 for baptism, with 55 consecrations. So, Kerry Daniel represented a common school of thought. A November 1956 issue of Time magazine quoted Daniel as saying that if school integration were pushed in Dallas, his church would open an all-white school. While correcting the evil of integration, Daniel said, we also plan to correct several other evils. For Daniel, other evils included the United Nations and One World Ideology. All this is part of, though not the totality, of the white Southern political religious ether in 1957, when a group known as the Little Rock Nine attempted to integrate Little Rock's Central High School. I should like to speak to you about the serious situation that has arisen in Little Rock. This podcast, A Second Language, will be right back after this word from Christians Against Christian Nationalism. I'm Brian Kaler, editor and president of Word and Way, and a supporter of the Christians Against Christian Nationalism campaign. Sometimes people say the United States is a Christian nation, and it's true that a majority of the U.S. population identifies as Christian. But the United States Constitution is clear that the country was not founded for Christians or to prefer Christians. The Constitution created a system of government open to people of any or no faith. Article 6 of the Constitution prohibits any religious test for public office. And the First Amendment upholds the separation of church and state. For more on the campaign, visit ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org. Welcome back to A Second Language from Good Faith Media. Much has been written about this episode in our country's history, and with good reason. Nine African-American students tried to desegregate Central High in September 1957. 
Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus called in the state's National Guard to prevent them from doing so. President Dwight Eisenhower then federalized Arkansas's National Guard and sent in Army units from the 101st Airborne Division in Kentucky to escort the students into the school. This part of the drama played out over a couple of weeks. What can be lost, if not careful, amid the blitz of federal orders and defiances is the real tension and trauma of the day, just 30 years on from a Little Rock lynching. Once more, John Kirk, distinguished professor of history at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. It's clear if you read uh, Daisy Bates's book, Long Shadow of Little Rock, that parents of the Little Rock Nine very much you know, understood the long shadow of John Carter's lynching in the city and understood what had happened and understood how quickly the city could descend into an orgy of violence. So that was always in the back of their minds when they were seeing what was happening at Central High School in 1957 and what was happening around their own children. So that only increased their fears and anxieties of what could happen and what might happen and what had happened already in the city. You know, there's precedent for that. And in the pulpit of Second Baptist Church downtown, Dale Cowling, then 33, himself a graduate of the same seminary as Carrie Daniel. The church had just celebrated Reverend Cowling's fifth anniversary there. Splashy program with a family photo of Dale and wife Olive, young daughters Rebecca, Sue Carroll, and Christy Dale. Cowling was writing the usual stuff in the church newsletter about numbers and outreach and missions. That summer he was on a high having just returned from the Southern Baptist Convention, where Southern Baptists had taken the relatively unusual step of electing a layman as their president. Their choice? Congressman Brooks Hayes, member of Second Baptist Church, signer of the Southern Manifesto, and, despite that fact, someone with a reputation as a racial moderate for the time. As the tension built in Little Rock, all pastors had choices to make. Say nothing, say something. A few years after the Little Rock crisis, Reverend Cowling remembered it this way. During these days, I made one of the hardest decisions of my life. At first, I squelched the divine urge to speak on the Christian's obligations. Instead, I finished writing my Sunday sermons on Thursday and left town. I was miserable. By the time I got back on Friday night, I could not bear it any longer. My mind was made up. On Saturday morning, I was in my study at break of day, writing a new sermon for Sunday morning. Reverend Kelling's sermon on September 1st, 1957, became a touchstone for Second Baptist. It lives on still as not just fact, it's almost mythical in stature. This despite the fact that the sermon is hardly a full-throated wholesale social justice manifesto of its own. Here's what Christian ethicist William Pinson Jr. wrote in his 1971 book, Sermons in American History. Some desegregationists may feel that Dr. Dale Cowling's sermon does not make a strong enough case for integration. When one remembers the geographical and historical setting, the purpose for which it was delivered, and subsequent events, it seems a strong statement indeed. Cowling delivered about 2,500 words to his white congregation. He unpacked why some people were so opposed to integration, noting that some opposed it based on their reading of scripture. 
but he added, they are simply greatly mistaken in their efforts to prove that God has marked the Negro race and relegated it to the role of servant. He brought up the fact that some whites believed Negroes were inferior, both physically and mentally, but he added, this view is contrary to our best scientific evidence. The real problem Cowling preached was a social one. It has to do with the changing of long-established traditions, he said, adding that many whites feared that integrated schools would lead to interracial marriages. He said, our fears of these new social relationships are so great until they keep us from looking calmly at other communities where they have already been met. Cowling referenced the gradual integration of the schools, calling it a good plan for overcoming the social problem. He also noted that the decision to integrate was not a local one. We must remember, he said, that the situation came about by the interpretation of the Constitution of the United States of America by the highest court of our land. He added, in what I think was some of his most incisive language, one seriously wonders if the high court could have interpreted otherwise. We must remember that the very heart of America is freedom. Her strength has been her rebellion against caste systems and her insistence upon the worth of every individual. The design of our Constitution was to provide this freedom for all. And then the good reverend unleashed his own scriptures. Let us consider Jesus' example, Cowling told his parishioners. We must remember that our Savior brought great criticism upon himself and that he openly cut across established social patterns. Cowling spoke of a Jewish Jesus and a Samaritan woman, and of the lessons of a Greek Cornelius, an Ethiopian eunuch, a slave named Onesimus. He quoted the Apostle Paul, And God hath made of one blood all nations. Blessed are the peacemakers, said Cowling, referencing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The young pastor concluded by asking four things of his church members. Have nothing to do with violence, be not a party to embarrassing or intimidating black students, pray for a solution to the problem, and be confident and calm. That's what Reverend Dell Cowling preached to his white congregation when the courageous Little Rock Nine tried to integrate Central High School. Judge Wendell Griffin offers a take on Cowling and Second Baptist at this point. Well, it was revolutionary because, because you understand, for three years, the rest of the doggone Baptist world, white Baptist world, was saying, damn the law. Uh, now, by the way, they were still quoting Paul and be subject to the higher authorities. <laughs> but it's easy to say looking back that Dale's calling was prophetic. I would not have called it prophetic, but I will say that he was not he was not willing to be a conformist. He was willing to be a nonconformist as carefully as possible. (laughs) 
Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 in that he became known as the pastor who was nonconformist, but I think within his congregation he was known as the nonconformist pastor who cared about them and cared about the cared about the I use that word witness of the church about us on a subject that white Christians and white Baptists have been phobic about. That's the issue of race and justice. <laughs> and so, I mean, almost by default, because everybody else was bowing to the idolatry of white supremacy and segregation, Dale comes across as prophetic because he he didn't he didn't bow to the, to that Nebuchadnezzar. I should also mention that Wendell Griffin, recently retired from the bench, is still pastor of New Millennium Church in Little Rock. As such, he can and does speak of the spiritual and scriptural. Well, Dale Cowling wasn't afraid to listen to the Holy Spirit. And Dale has a, was a Southern white man, had white privilege, and he could be as country homespun as he wanted to be. But he was also uh, not afraid to be literate, and I don't mean just be able to call out letters. <laughs> he was not afraid to think and to reason and to let the Holy Spirit guide his reasoning. And his also, the congregation was not afraid to follow leadership that was that was controversial. Dale was the nonconformist white Baptist pastor in an age when being the biggest conformist white Baptist pastor meant you were popular and would also meant your church would be perceived as growing. Second Baptist grew, I think, in the Holy Spirit and then grew because of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, Second, it seems, has been able to maintain a sense of clarity about who they are and who they should not be. Several years after the Little Rock crisis, Cowling reflected in writing on that 1957 sermon. Of course, the radicals branded me and set about to destroy me, he wrote. Their methods were simply unbelievable. In the main, our church members measured up to a thrilling Christian maturity. Though many of them disagreed with my convictions, they still defended the freedom of the pulpit and remained loyal to the church and in friendship to me. Despite the victories, however, this terrible catastrophe in our city cost our church 200 members out of the Sunday school and $25,000 per year of financial support. According to church records, that was roughly 10% 
of both giving and membership gone virtually overnight. And I remember being very shocked about that because there were some close friends whose children I played with and all of a sudden they weren't available to play anymore. That's Rebecca Cowling, the oldest daughter of Reverend Cowling. She was nine years old in 1957. She lives in Little Rock and is good friends with my friend, Kevin Hefner, and his wife, Angie. So it was a hurtful time for a child and a hurtful time for adults as well. I think few people knew what to do with that frustration and loneliness and anger. And there were not places where people could go to get help during times like those. One afternoon, Kevin and I took Miss Cowling for a ride around Little Rock, stopping at some points of interest, like the State Capitol Building, Second Baptist, the old home of Daisy Bates. What's it feel like to have a life that existed at ground zero of a, of a world event? I think the thing, and I think my parents would both say this, you don't realize at the time that history's being made. I feel very blessed, and I think my parents did too. In many ways, the school integration crisis was just beginning. Hear what happened next in the fourth episode of A Second Language from Good Faith Media. You've been listening to A Second Language, written, produced, and narrated by me, Cliff Vaughn of Good Faith Media. The executive producer is Mitch Randall. We hope you'll like, rate, and share the podcast. We are a nonprofit, and that really helps us out. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. Thanks to our interviewees, Kwame Abdul-Bay, Lanny Allenbaugh, Rebecca Cowling, Preston Clegg, Chris Ellis, Wendell Griffin, Stephanie Harp, Eric Higgins, Ray Higgins, John Kirk, Gene Levy, Jim and Gail Malik, Jenna Sullivan, and Sarah Tarek. Special thanks to my colleague, Starlet Thomas, who hosts the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media, and to Callie Chisholm for the artwork. And huge thanks to Kevin and Angie Hefner. Thanks to Lisa Spear and Taylor Lawson at the Washita Baptist University Archives, Taffy Hall at the Southern Baptist Historical Library and Archives, Carolyn Wilson in the Special Collections Research Center at the William and Mary Libraries, and Cassidy Long in Special Collections at the University of Arkansas. Other material comes from the archives at NASA, the Library of Congress, and the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. Thanks to Jim Pfeiffer and Sandra Hubbard, as well as Billy and Mark Heflin. Thanks to Patrick Fleming and Debbie Huff, Marquis Hunt, Joe and Charlotte Jeffers, Connie New, David Rice, and everyone at the Bramble Market. Thanks also to the Community Bakery in downtown Little Rock. Our music comes from Pond 5. If you are interested in learning more history about Little Rock and Arkansas, visit the fabulous Encyclopedia of Arkansas.net, a project of the Central Arkansas Library System. Our podcast show notes will list other helpful resources. Check out our other podcasts from Good Faith Media, including our first narrative podcast, Brother Molly, about the life and work of theologian Molly T. Marshall. A Second Language, released in August 2023 from Good Faith Media. We thank you for listening.